For Advent, we have been looking at how different figures of the Old Testament, namely Adam, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, and David, anticipate or pattern the life of the Messiah as fulfilled in Jesus the Christ. Well, Advent is over and it has given its way to Christmas tide, and today serves really as a bonus for the series. But instead of looking at a figure that anticipates Christ, though, Aaron the high priest does uh, figure importantly this, this morning. We're looking at a pattern of action that shows up across Scripture. This morning we begin with a passage of Scripture, the instructions for the consecration or ordination of Aaron and his sons in Exodus 29. And while I'll give the basic meaning for the whole uh, chapter, there, there's one set of details that while strange and really Hopefully you've had a chance to read the whole thing. It is very strange to us. These details are something <clears throat> excuse me, that are repeated, believe it or not, often in Scripture in various ways. So we're in Exodus 29. Just to give you a flavor of the passage, I'm going to pick it up with verse 19 and read to about verse 25. These are instructions to Moses and what he is to do for Aaron and his priests. You shall take the other ram, this would be the third ram, or the second ram, the third sacrifice, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. This is verse 20. And you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. You shall also take the fat from the ram and the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and the right thigh, for it is a ram of ordination, and one loaf of bread and one cake of bread made with oil and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. You shall put all these on the palms of Aaron and on the palms of his sons and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar on top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It is a food offering to the Lord. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him in prayer once again. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, this is admittedly a very strange passage for us living thousands of years after it was first written and done. So I pray for us that this time would actually be very useful, that your spirit would be among us to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that I might be clear in showing how passages just like this one Point forward to your Son, Jesus the Christ, and what he has done for us even now. I pray all of this in his name. Amen. Well, to say that Americans are not a ceremonial type of people, well, that's a bit of an understatement. It's not to say we don't have ceremonies. We do. I mean, you can just think of a ceremonial first pitch or standing for the playing of the national anthem. In fact, the, probably the, the place where you will see ceremonies most on offer are either with the military or with sporting events, in particular football. <clears throat> but if someone were to attend, say, a typical funeral these days, that is a worship event, that person 
may find that the funeral itself feels a bit thin, and in turn, would most likely find adults in attendance who have no idea how to dress or act or have any notion of what it means to show reverence or respect and are often either irreverent or at the very least very uncomfortable or perhaps both. And in comparison to even just 40 years ago, we have grown very thin or perhaps informal is the right word to the point that not only do things like funerals feel odd and strange to us, what we read about in places like Exodus 29 seem uh, not merely strange, but as if they come from another planet altogether. Ancient Israel, as opposed to America, was a very thick uh, ceremonial culture with ceremonies that were purposely rich with meaning. So even as American culture tends to pride itself on the rejection of the ceremonial or the liturgical, Things like the coronation of King Charles III six months ago demonstrate that Western culture used to see things very differently, and the fact that so many people were fascinated and taken in by it shows that I think there's still a place for it even now. Even so, Exodus 29 is the instructions to Moses on how he was to ordain and consecrate Aaron and his four sons to the priesthood and how the rite was to be performed with each passing generation. Now, previous to this, Exodus 28 uh, is about what Aaron and his sons were to wear in their office of priest, and the garments were, in a sense, a symbolic tabernacle. I encourage you to go back and read it. I, I looked really drab in comparison to what they were to wear. What they were to wear was just awesome. Uh, it, was, it was really cool. And I, I think the priestly garments themselves look forward to, to Christ him, himself, complete with Aaron bearing the names of the tribes of Israel on him as he entered the holy place to intercede for Israel, including the words, Holy to the Lord, engraved on a plate of pure gold that was fastened to his turban and placed directly on his forehead. Like with how baptism now functions, the priest was marked right between his eyes by the name of the Lord. Well, our great high priest, Jesus, the one who is absolutely holy to the Lord, has engraved his people's names on his hands, as Isaiah 49 puts it. And through his death, he has atoned for us before the Father, removing the boundary separating us from God's throne room, the holy of holies, even as he continually intercedes for us before his Father. Well, Exodus 29 builds on this imagery and it's a seven-day ritual intended to both set Aaron and his sons apart for ministry within the tabernacle, but also the tabernacle and the altar itself, which the priests were directly tied to. Now, as an aside, <clears throat> this may be an obvious question, but it's worth asking, well, what is a priest? Well, a priest is a servant of God's house. He guards the sanctuary. He cleans the sanctuary. He works according to God's commands, and he serves both like a steward of God's house, much like how Joseph was made the steward of Pharaoh's house, that is, Egypt, even as a priest also represents the people to God. So in that sense, a priest is very much a mediator. He's the go-between between God and the people. And at the heart of a priest's service was the offering of sacrifices according to God's word. And while there was such a thing as, as individuals who offered sacrifices to God through the priests, 
Many, if not most, of the sacrifices made represented many people at once, if not at times the whole of Israel, like say on the Day of Atonement. So just as with Passover, one lamb was sacrificed for an entire household, so too with most other sacrifices, that's how it worked. A sacrifice represented a good amount of people, if not all of Israel at times. The notion of, of one, one animal giving an unblemished offering, his life for the many, of course, leads ultimately to the suffering servant of Isaiah who would give his one unblemished life for the life of his people. And it's why still to this day, our central symbol is one of atonement. It is the cross that is over my head. From the one, many have life. Now, the ordination rite itself, <clears throat> excuse me, is divided into seven sections, roughly corresponding to the seven days of, of creation from Genesis 1, with an additional bonus day and an eighth day tacked on at the end. Now, the, the seven sections are basically this. So I'm going to cover the whole chapter in like 30 seconds flat. First, we read about the materials Moses was to gather for the ordination itself, and that included the animals and the breads and the oils and all that sort of thing. That's verses 1 through 3. Second, there was the ritual washing, the putting on of Aaron's priestly garments and his anointing. Then the same thing was done to his sons, and that's verses 4 through 9. Then comes the three sacrifices, one bull and two rams. One bull for the purification of Aaron and his sons, and bulls were always used for uh, the atonement of priests. One ram for an ascension offering, and so the bull and the ram function as uh, the third section. And then one additional ram for the ordination itself, which is the fourth section. So that takes you from verses 10 through 28. The fifth section is all about the priestly garments. Again, that's verses 29 through 30. The sixth section is about food in the sanctuary, because they're there seven days, they got to eat and what the priests alone were allowed to eat during the seven-day ordination. Nobody else could eat what they could eat. That's verses 31 through 34. And then the seventh section reiterates that this is a seven-day rite, and that's verses 35 through 37. <clears throat> but then there's this additional section after this. Again, it's very much like an eighth day that describes the morning and evening sacrifices that were to be done in perpetuity, in which... God promised to meet at the tabernacle with his people to speak to them there, to sanctify the place with his glory. So he would consecrate, that is, set apart the tabernacle and the altar so they would be sacramental and the means that God would use to sanctify his people. God always uses means to sanctify his people. So he would consecrate Aaron and his son then to serve as priests. Again, he, he promises all throughout the Old Testament, but again, he does this a couple of times. He promises to dwell among Israel and be their God. That's what it means to be Emmanuel, God with us. And then finally, through all these things, the people would know. So through the tabernacle, through these sacrifices, through the fact that they have a high priest, they would know, this is what God says, I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So the chief purpose for bringing Israel out of Egypt is this. 
is that they would be with God and they would worship Him and have communion with Him. That is the central defining aspect of what it is to be a human. And that's the basic flow of the chapter. Now, if you track back to verse 4, what you find is that before entering the tabernacle, Aaron and his sons were to wash their feet and hands, removing the dust of death before entering holy ground. And by the time you get to the first century with Jesus, the Pharisees and other groups did this before everything, right? So they, they are basically taking on kind of the posture of the priesthood within the tabernacle. Then Aaron was to dress in his priestly garments, followed by his sons, and then Moses was to take the anointing oil and pour it on Aaron's head. As we've mentioned with, with David, uh, this oil represented the giving of the Holy Spirit. And as Psalm 133 describes it, it was incredibly messy with the oil running down his face, down his beard, and down his collar. So think about this. This is a thick, messy, messy oil. He is decked out in his full array, and Moses just hits him with it on the top of his head, and down it goes through all of his robes. Later in verse 21, we find out that part of the blood from the third ram that was put on the altar, so the blood is put on the altar, was then to be taken from the altar and sprinkled on, uh, on Aaron and his sons alongside the oil, a move that, that basically ties the altar and Aaron together and vice versa. So in other words, Aaron in some sense would be like an extension of the altar itself, almost like its hands and feet. So get the picture here. So these, these marvelous priestly garments, they're covered in oil and blood, marking Aaron off as atoned for and thus clean, but also marked off by the Spirit as well. That's why Aaron and his sons placed their hand on the bulls, the first sacrifice, head together, and the bull in turn was sacrificed as a purification offering. The one bull died for the atonement of the priesthood. After the bull, the first ram was sacrificed, with part of the blood being thrown on the altar, and then it was offered as a burnt offering to God, which is an ascension offering, symbolizing in some ways that the king ate first. So the priest didn't get to eat of that, that sacrifice. It's a recognition, really, that the whole world belonged to God. So when you come to the table of the Lord's Supper, for example, the bread and the wine are already on the table. When, we, when they remove the covering, it's already there right? Which is a recognition that God owns everything, even as he is generously sharing from his own table with his people. Well, that's what's in view here too. With the second ram, or this would be the third animal, again, Aaron and his sons place their hands on its head. The ram is killed and part of the blood was placed on Aaron and his son's right ear, their thumbs of their right hand and the big toes of their right feet, and then the rest of the blood was thrown against the altar. Then, wait, there's more, right? In verses 22 through 24, Moses was to put the fat, so the fat was, was always God's portion, the fat from the ram, the fat of its tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the long lobe of the liver, the kidneys and its fat, the right thigh, and all this has meaning, by the way, that I'm not going to walk us through, along with one loaf of bread, one cake of bread made with oil, and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord, that is the show bread, uh, 
of the holy place. <clears throat> and, and the reason for these items is that they, they, they are all things that the priest would be offering to God in typical worship. And Moses was to put them on Aaron and his son's palms. All right, so all the things I just read, hands out. There it is, on their hands. They have open hands. They receive these things from God, and then they wave them before the Lord, recognizing that we all see what's going on here. Then they put them on the altar as a burnt offering before the Lord. So this was a symbol to everyone involved of how the priest would be handling the things of God that he himself had provided. So if you want to see a much simpler version of that, when you see me doing the Lord's Supper, I'm handling the things of God. Right? I take the bread and I purposely break it. I take the cup and I purposely pour the wine. So you can see these things being handled that are being given from God to you. That's really what's kind of in view here. Now, having said all of that, are you still with me in this? Have I lost you? Hopefully not. Once I started mentioning fat in the hands, it's like, okay, buddy. But that's, that's what's there. So I'm guessing most of you have, have caught the notion, at least partially in all of this, of atonement and the giving of the Spirit. But why in the midst of these sacrifices, especially for the sacrifice set apart for the ordination itself, did God command blood to be put on the right ears, right thumbs, and right big toes? of Aaron and his sons. Well, in short, what it symbolizes, <clears throat> excuse me, is that they have been atoned for and they have been given the spirit. They've been set apart to serve God in his house. The high priest and his sons then now have been given ears that will listen to God's word, hands that will do his work, and feet that will follow him. So ear, hand, foot. Almost exactly the same ritual and meaning is found with the cleansing of lepers on the eighth day in Leviticus 14. And as we've mentioned in the past, the eighth day is associated with new creation. So seven plus one, so a brand new week, so to speak. It's why circumcision was done on the eighth day in anticipation of the new covenant and the circumcision of the heart by the spirit. And so the priest, after offering a lamb, as an atoning sacrifice for the, the now cleansed leper, would put some of the blood on the leper's ear, thumb, and big toe. Again, ear, hand, foot. And the idea was that because the leper had been cleansed and atoned for, he now had ears that could hear God, hands that could serve him, and feet that could follow him. It's like when Jesus cleansed, cleansed 10 lepers in Luke chapter 17. They had asked Jesus for mercy, and he showed it to them, but only one returned to Jesus, a Samaritan, no less, and worshipped him, to which Jesus said in response, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, we'll get to this passage later on when we return to our series in Luke, but the same idea is here, too. They listened to Jesus' word. They did what he commanded to do, so they headed off to the priest to be examined, but only one of the ten recognized he had been cleansed and rightly turned back to worship Jesus, to which Jesus told him to walk in faith. Ear, hand, foot. The same idea is at work in Psalm 1. Listen to what it says. See if you can hear it. 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, so that's walking in terms of what you're hearing, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. That's the idea of judgment, what you're doing with your hands. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So in other words, the righteous human is someone who listens to God's word, makes judgments and evaluations by it, and in turn walks in the way of God. Now notice that Psalm 1 does not tell us what the man's job was. Right? It just says a man. And in a certain sense, whatever the job he had is, is irrelevant. He could be a priest or he could be a leper. The pattern uh, that that is to define every human life, no matter what their role or calling is, is the same. Ear, hand, foot. But this pattern of ear, hand, foot is not just something righteous people do. Every human is defined by ear, hand, foot. So whatever God or gods a person listens to, and everyone listens to some god or another, even if it is the god of their own self-creation, that person will in turn serve that God with his hands and will walk according to his ways. This is true of every single person. Consider Proverbs 6 and what God doesn't merely hate, but what is an abomination to him as a wicked version of ear, hand, foot. He says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. So this passage takes for granted that the person has already listened to the serpent, and his heart then, by definition, worships what is evil. That is revealed through how he views other people, haughty eyes, What he says, he's a liar and a false witness. He sows discord among brothers, or as we would say, he's a gossip. He devises wicked plans, and his hands shed innocent blood, and his feet make haste to run to evil. Ear, hand, foot. It's all right there. Or consider Genesis 3. The original sin begins with the ear. Adam and Eve first listened to the voice of the serpent over and against God's voice, which then led them to take with their hands what was forbidden from them, and in turn, they walked away from God and they hid from him. With their children, Cain first sinned with his ear, refusing to listen to God's warning and instead was mastered by sinful desire. He then killed his brother with his hand, and then with his feet he walked away from God into exile. A positive example of how this works was Abraham, who listened to God's promise. He believed it, then followed God into Canaan, and everywhere he went, he built altars to God. This culminates with Genesis 22 and Abraham's trust that God would provide a better sacrifice for Isaac and would keep his promise to redeem the world through his offspring. 
Or you could think of Genesis 39 and how Joseph refused to listen to the overtures of Potiphar's wife and in turn refused to take what was forbidden to him. And in the moment of crisis, he ran from temptation and conformity to God's word. Ear, hand, foot. Returning to the rite of ordination in Exodus 29 is telling that an animal was sacrificed and its blood applied to Aaron's ear, thumb, and foot. That is, something had to die in order for the priest to be fully alive to God. Well, Jesus, in fulfillment of the Old Testament, does this for us both as the high priest and as the sacrifice. The difference between Aaron and Jesus, of course, is that Jesus did not need to be atoned for, as he was perfectly righteous, perfectly listening to God the Father and doing what he says. That's exactly how Jesus speaks about himself in John chapter 5. He is the one who listens to his Father, does his Father's will, and acts and judges according to his Father's will. Jesus is the righteous man. He is the life-giving tree of Psalm 1. But as Hebrews makes clear, even as Jesus perfectly embodies the pattern of ear, hand, foot in himself, he laid down his life as an atoning sacrifice for his people, the unblemished lamb, so that by his blood we are both atoned for and in turn we too have now been given ears, hands, and feet to follow him. So Jesus is both the one who perfectly listens, obeys, and follows God, and he speaks so we can hear. He acts so we can obey. He walks so we can follow. That's why in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus repeatedly describes his disciples as those who listen to his voice and do what he says. As he teaches it at the end of Luke chapter 6, the person who listens to him and does what he says is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Again, like a life-giving tree with deep roots. So what is implied in his teaching is that the life of a disciple, well, it's a gift. It's a gift. We are given ears, hands, and feet by Jesus. So like we see with the ordination rite of Exodus 29, Jesus not only does for us what we could not do for ourselves, that is, he atones for our sin, he also restores to us what was lost in the fall, making us fully alive humans to the Father. Now keep in mind that Exodus 29 was really only for a very few people. Aaron and his sons, really, that's it set apart for the critical purpose of offering sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. But with Jesus, well, the need for perpetual sacrifice ended, even as God's people as a whole, not just a few, have been anointed with the Spirit as a royal priesthood set apart for service in the world that Jesus is taking back for himself. Again, this is what baptism symbolizes. You have been atoned for and set apart as a royal priesthood with the privilege of bearing God's name everywhere you go. So you too are also holy to the Lord. And so with Jesus, like how God clothed Aaron and his sons, we too have been clothed in righteousness with robes better than what Aaron enjoyed. 
Now, case in point, 50 days after he gave his life as an atoning sacrifice on Golgotha at Pentecost, a feast that, that both celebrated the first fruit, fruits of the harvest and the giving of the law on Sinai, Jesus poured out his spirit and it appeared as fire on the heads of the apostles, not unlike the anointing oil running down the head of Aaron. Through the Spirit, our ears, hands, and feet have been marked off, complete with regenerate hearts of flesh that are set on God so that we have eyes to see and ears to hear and hands to obey and feet to follow. Now, I love bringing out these, these details of Scripture because I believe <clears throat> excuse me, that the great privilege of being a Christian, one of anyway, is that we are caught up in this incredible God-crafted story that includes weird things like the anointing uh, oil running down Aaron's beard and the fiery outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the apostles. So this isn't just a nice story to tell our kids. This is the story of the world, and even in our small town, we are right in the midst of that story. So in other words, this is your story too. This isn't just some weird ancient story. No, this story tracks all the way to us in this moment. And I believe that what Jesus did on Calvary 2,000 years ago is the center point of all history. And at that place, God conquered the serpent and began to take back the world for himself. And here we are, part of that conquering, that we enjoy the fruits that first came from his death and his resurrection. And this world, you know, far from the fiction of a disenchanted, strictly naturalistic world proclaimed by the so-called intellectuals over the last 400 years that reduces everything to politics or psychology or personal fulfillment in a meaningless, random nature. No. No, it's a world created by God that is beautiful and full of meaning and is far more dangerous and more spiritual than most modern people believe, even as it is clear for, that people in America, they can't help but worship something and are longing for something beyond themselves, beyond what they can see, something that speaks to the eternity that haunts their souls. And I say all this because I struggled to know what to do with the reality of the religious climate of our region. We live in a nominal Christian area of the country. That is, most people are Christians who are Christians in name only. And we are living off the fumes of Christian convictions of generations long since gone. Like the ten lepers who were cleansed by Jesus, very few in our county turn back and worship him, even as perhaps maybe all of them take the name of Christ. And this is evidenced by how we treat the means that God has given his people to know him. Things like church itself, or scripture, or prayer, or how we see our lives throughout our week. I mean, after all, if we take the fourth commandment on worship as optional or as light, why not the other nine too? Like any teacher will tell a kid struggling in class, it's not merely a matter of, of showing up. It's what you do when you show up. So how do you treat this gathering when you come? Do you actually believe that God has promised to tabernacle with his people here, that he has actually promised to sanctify through these simple means of grace. In turn, you know, the question comes up, what are parents teaching and modeling at home for their kids? So it's not, 
you know, whether you think prayer is important. If we did a poll, who here among us is going to say, I, I don't think prayer is important? Who would say that among even the county? No, it's whether you actually pray that matters. After all, soon after being ordained to the priesthood, think about this. After all of that, Aaron's two oldest sons started offering strange fire. That is, they worshiped according to their own desires, not according to God's commands. And God killed them for it. So to be sure, the most obvious answer to these problems, of course, and we've been saying this for years, is an issue of desire. Whatever we desire most is what we will pursue with our time and energy and our money. And it's pretty clear in Butler County, God is not the forefront of what most people actually want, no matter what they may actually say. But perhaps what needs to be said is that we simply do not value submission. We don't value submission. That is, unless it is a submission to whatever we happen to desire in the moment. Again, when we consider the ordination rite of Exodus 29, every last detail of that rite was prescribed by God, and Moses was commanded to keep it. He couldn't take parts out. He couldn't add parts. This is what it is. And it was given for their good. It was given for their good. And while Exodus 29 may sound overbearing and oppressive to us, Again, we are a people who prides themselves on the rejection of ceremonies and formalities, even simple ones, like the fourth commandment. Jesus himself delighted to do the Father's will and found God's laws to be life-affirming. Thus he told the lepers, go to the priests. Go to the priests. I mean, just read through Psalm 119. That's precisely how David understood God's word too. Even in his words of comfort in Matthew 11, Jesus doesn't offer a life free from listening and doing someone else's word as if we are the captain of our souls. No, he says that his yoke, think about that. His yoke is easy and his burden is light, but it is a yoke. It's a call to submit to his word. No matter what, humans were made to follow the pattern of ear, hand, and foot. There's just no way of getting around it. You can't get around how you were made. Perhaps the issue then for us living in a nominal Christian land is that, like Adam in the garden, we have been infatuated by a word from the serpent and have left the word of God and the yoke of Jesus untried. We simply haven't wanted to do it. And my prayer for us as we enter this new year, and not just for this church, but for this county, is that because we have been atoned for and baptized in the Spirit and given the ability to hear and do and follow our Lord, that we will take Jesus at his word and we'll listen to him and we'll do what he says and we'll follow where he leads. Why? Ear, hand, foot. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your kindness that you have not left us to a yoke of our own choosing. You have not left us to yoke ourselves to other gods that only lead to death. You have given us a yoke in your son, Jesus, and it is good. Lord, his word is perfect and good, opening the eyes and enlivening the heart. His commands are not burdensome. They are, in fact, quite good, and they are life-affirming, and his way is the best way even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. 
We give you thanks for our great Messiah and our Savior. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.